We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the debated podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by a returning uh, guest, this time in a, a, a new uh, guise as a, a candidate rather than uh, an activist, Nathan Baroda, who is the Labour Party's candidate for Unsworth uh, Ward at next year's council elections. Welcome back to the podcast, Nathan. Thanks, Will. Great to be back in a regenerated capacity. <laughs> Not too much of a change, though, thankfully. Uh, Indeed. Uh, so um, the first question that I'd like to ask is, what do you think are going to be the um, main issues at uh, next year's council elections? Definitely. So I think the main one will be COVID recovery. Yeah. Um, this crisis has defined our lives for the past six months, and, and sadly, I think we'll do for the next six months too. And it's about, you know, across boroughs across the country, who do we want to rebuild uh, our boroughs? Who do we want to rebuild our towns? And, you know, we have the slogan of build back better. It's been on the left for a couple of months now and Boris Johnson's co-opted it, uh, which is fine. It shows our, our hegemony, if you like. Um, but, you know, Labour have been putting together these policies and values uh, right from the start about, you know, the role of the state rather than privatising it like Serco. Uh, so I do think the COVID recovery will be important. I think people will trust us on that because of the values and policies we've shown in the past six months. Equally, I think the environment will be a really important issue. I think we've seen that really increase um, in its kind of salience um, in the past year or so. I think people want to know on a local level what their councils are doing in terms of the environment. Um, you know, in Barry, we've got a really strong track record on that that we really want to, to showcase to, to the ward. So I'd say COVID recovery and environment, and also, I guess, in terms of working with um, other autonomous bodies so like the Greater Manchester Mayor uh, Andy Burnham's up for re-election this year um, how do we make sure we do things at Greater Manchester level uh, and equally you know how do we re- re- relate to government and you know this government has massively underfunded councils particularly in the north uh, and how do we fight for a fair deal for our constituents. Uh, now you mentioned obviously uh, coronavirus there I mean how do you think that the government have um, handled it and how do you think that they've handled um, uh, the link between local government and uh, government at Westminster, do you think there's been enough communication or do you think that uh, the Westminster government haven't communicated enough with uh, regional councils like, uh, for example, in Greater Manchester? Uh, Definitely. So the short answer to that is no, I don't think they have communicated (laughs) uh, enough. Although, you know, looking back to February, you think this is an unprecedented crisis. Let's start Mm. with that. And no government could have found this easy. Mm. You know, there's inevitably going to be difficult decisions. And you know, I th- look back to February and I think, bloody hell, I don't envy Boris, I don't envy mm. this government for doing that. And I st- so I started from that position of, of good faith, of trying to um, see, you know, what can they do right, uh, which I'm sure, you know, a few things like the furlough scheme, Nightingale hospitals, et cetera. And all with that considered, you do think that so many of the things they've done have been wrong, unfortunately, for this country and not in the national interest. The failure to lock down soon enough. Um, you know, the failure to ask the proper questions that would have led to us locking down before the 23rd of March. If you think about Greece locking down on the 5th, it would have saved so many lives and actually helped the economy too because it would have shortened the, the time that we would have needed to uh, lock down for until, until uh, what ended up being June. The whole Dominic Cummings affair, which really undermined public trust. The testing regime, which had never properly scaled up. And again, it's an example of what I'm going to talk about later about centralising the privatised track and trace, pointing to someone like Daniel Harding with very limited skills, 
uh, all the related fiascos like the uh, A-level saga, you know, really shows a government that hasn't understood, hasn't got to grips with the level of, of the crisis and has an ideology that is, you know, it's the neoliberalism that takes you towards this prioritization. It's so rotten that it's failing so many people mm. in, in this country. And then in relation to local councils, the, this government has, has an extraordinary tendency to centralize everything mm. into kind of one small room in Downing Street. That's Dom and his mates. They, they run the country. And, you know, this is a government with a 43%, you know, 44, you know, mid 40% of the country voted for the general election. Obviously, that's enough in the constitutional terms to get a majority. I'm not mm. denying that. But it's not consummate to the, to the power that they're with. Yeah. And people also elect regional or local government. People also elect their MPs um, after, you know, the, the government prorogued parliament. So this government has always centralised, has always viewed everyone else as, as idiotic, you aren't, you know, pals with Dom, etc. I think that's a really dangerous uh, position to be in. And it really shows, uh, particularly in terms of testing and tracing. I think, you know, if we just start from a position of what is a national interest, forgetting party politics for a second, it's just so obvious that you devolve that to local councils. There's no way that someone on Whitehall can know the intricacies of tracing in Barry, or you know, be that in Leicester as well. Um, that has to be done locally. That just makes the most sense in terms of having the most effective results. And when that is done locally and effectively in parts of Cumbria, that has been tremendously effective. Mm. Whereas where it's been centralised, you know, you have people sat at Circo HQ who apparently haven't contacted people at all since it was set up in June. So I think that centralising tendency is really, really dangerous for the for the for the country and for you know the response to COVID. Um, now, one of the um, arguments that has been made in regard to restrictions and uh, the uh, imposition of the new uh, tier system is that parts of the country, like, for example, Liverpool, Greater Manchester, are going to be put into these uh, tiers because of the infection rate. But other areas in other parts of uh, the country uh, that have similar uh, rates, or maybe not quite the same, but uh, would apply in, for example, tier two, haven't. Do you think that there's a certain amount of north-south divide that the government are putting areas in the north of England into uh, higher uh, restriction levels because they're in the north uh, rather than, you know, just applying it uh, across the country and following the science as they said that they would? 100%, 100%. So I think this is a completely southern-guided strategy. Um, if you look ultimately back to May and June, and the decision to reverse a lockdown, that was because the rates had gone down in the south, particularly in London. Mm. They hadn't in the north. Um, you know, the, the virus started spreading first in, in London and we all went into a national lockdown and that was the right decision. But Andy Burnham was saying at the time, this is too soon for the North, this is too soon for Greater Manchester. The government ploughed on uh, because they treat those voices with, with ultimately disdain. Um, it's a strong term to use, but I think that's accurate. Um, they ploughed on ahead and had to, because of the rate was above one, the R rate was above one in June, it still was in July, which made that decision to put Greater Manchester under local lockdown or increase the restrictions. It wasn't ever a lockdown. And that's been in place for over 100 days now and hasn't massively affected because they don't have people on the ground to say what is and isn't working. Meanwhile, they're pursuing stuff like eat out to help out. You almost must go back to the offices, which were massively exacerbating the crisis still. And absolutely, I mean, the rates in Boris Johnson's own constituency and the constituencies of cabinet ministers like Robert Jamrick and Gavin Williamson are higher now than Greater Manchester was mm. um, when it got put into what would now be tier two. So I think it shows that not only is there 
you know, scant regard for, for Northern communities, but also this complete, you know, pork barrel politics, particularly with Robert Jemrick. And if you vote for this particular set of, of Trumps that run the country, they'll do you a favour. And if you don't, I'm sorry, they don't care about you. Um, now, uh, one of the uh, potential ways out of this that has been suggested would be a, a circuit breaker in Northern Ireland. They've just announced that they will be going uh, into a, a circuit breaker for a couple uh, of weeks. Do you think that that's the right thing to do for the country as a whole, or do you think that that should be applied more regionally? I think it should be the thing for the country as a whole. I am, mm. um, you know, that's a regretful place to be. We shouldn't have to be in it. It's a massive policy failure from the government. But I do think ultimately the rates are so high now and they're increasing across the country. Jonathan Van Tam showed yesterday mm. um, that that's the case. So yeah, we do have to do this. But ultimately, you know, lockdowns are important because obviously they, they reduce the contact that spreads the virus, but also because they allow you to get a functioning track and trace model uh, in place. And we had 10 weeks, 12 weeks last time. And the government didn't do that. Um, because they privatise it off to Circo and it's not been functioning. So this time we have to make sure that when we're out of the circuit break, hopefully, that that is in place to make sure that people can be uh, go out safely and know that their contacts will be traced uh, if they do have coronavirus. Um, what are your thoughts on the way that the Labour Party has approached this? Of course, we've mentioned Andy Burnham. But I- I'm just thinking in particular, um, do you think that Keir Starmer has been uh, robust enough in terms of criticising uh, the government for uh, the failure to, to get a grip of the virus? Um, I don't think so. I think he was right um, yesterday to call for the circuit breaker. I think he was right to begin this, you know, in April mm-hmm. when he became leader by saying, we are a constructive opposition. Um, this is an unprecedented crisis. In the few weeks since, you know, I think he introduced himself to the public extraordinarily effectively to, to, to great success and COVID was, was a significant part of that and his maturity and response to that and constructiveness. However, there is a limit by which point you have to still be constructive, but that criticism has to take the lead and, and there has to be the emphasis. And when the government has failed on stuff like track and trace, he's called it out. Uh, I do think possibly he should have been a little bit stronger in the past few weeks. But I think now that's been reversed with the, the correct call to, for a circuit breaker. How do you feel about the um, leadership of the Labour Party in general? Because I remember um, the last time we spoke in January, it was at just at the very start of uh, the campaign. And obviously, a great deal has um, cha- uh, happened since then, you know, new leader of the Labour Party. How do you feel about the, the leadership in general? I think it's going broadly well. Uh, I think from a, from a polling perspective, it's going well in terms of Keir's introduced himself to the public. He's got very high approval ratings, extraordinarily high approval ratings, I'd say. And the party has taken, um, you know, leading some polls and has certainly bridged the gaps. I think that's good. Um, you know, in terms of policies, they're going to wait um, towards closer towards general election. I understand that. I understand that. Uh, I just hope that the policy platform we do end up with is very close to the 10 commitments that Keir made during the leadership election, which are really about maintaining the legacy of, of socialist economics. Um, I think that's really important that he does that. Uh, and maintain that socialist platform. I'm confident that he will. I really hope that he will. Um, and it's up to us as members to try and, you know, and, you know, through our, our role as National Policy Forum or electing people for the National Executive, et cetera, and through our MPs to say, you know, we as members want this. But equally, I think what's important is that the Labour Together report, um, which his office have, have accepted and the party looking to implement, does call for that. 
uh, that platform to remain in place. So I am very, very happy with, with what's going on, but not uncritical. Um, as I just, you know, just said, I think they should be more robust in the past few weeks. And equally, you know, policies like on cashmere, um, I don't agree. Uh, and on these, these two bills that have come forward um, that the government have introduced, I don't agree with them necessarily, but broadly I'm positive and, and happy with the direction. Um, now, of course, we're also seeing um, internal elections within the Labour Party, NEC elections and uh, young Labour elections. I don't know how closely you've uh, followed them, but uh, if you have, what have been your uh, thoughts about the way that the campaign has been um, conducted and the candidates that are standing? So apologies to yourself and your viewers. I haven't followed it closely at all. <laughs> um, I've, been, I've been busy and not I've not been on Twitter very much. I think that's the, <laughs> That's the main place that they're, uh, they're taking part in. Although I was um, at my constituency party a few weeks ago, I spoke in favour of Jermaine Chapman and Anne Black being nominated as the Open Labour candidates. And I think they're two great candidates. Um, pleased that my CLP nominated them, uh, which is great, and they're both on the ballot. So those are, those are two great candidates, and I, apologies for not paying paying more. <laughs> oh, no, it's not, no, not a problem at, uh, at all. Um, I, I wonder, do you think that... Um, the National Executive Committee and Young Labour. Do you think that the importance of them is uh, some, something that has to be emphasised, uh, regardless of whether the, the party is in um, opposition or in government? Because I know some people have felt, well, what's the point in, you know, in all these internal elections when we aren't actually uh, in, in government? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think they're arguably more important in opposition than government because... Mm. Um, you know, we have to work towards getting to government. I think the NEC is one of the important bodies that does so. Really important body with with really important range of powers um, that affect the party a lot. Um, and I know it's ironic I'm saying that and I'm not paying much attention uh, to this particular uh, set of elections, but, you know, there's, these are the constituency reps. It's also reps for, for liberation communities, for the various trade unions and socialist societies as well. Um, and also, you know, ones for, for the parliamentary party. So it's a very, very important committee. It's got a very long history uh, in our in our party and in our movement. So uh, I hope that's the case. And equally, uh, as well as you know, if there's a, a kind of educational training about what the party does, I think that should be front and centre. But so should the regional boards within um, the regional Labour Party structures. You kind of wielding NEC power at regional level. Uh, I think they're important too, and often uh, underemphasised by by some. Um, now, of course, next year, we're not only having uh, local and mayoral elections in England, we're also having devolved elections in uh, Wales and Scotland. Uh, how do you feel about Labour's position in um, Wales and Scotland? Do you think that things are uh, on track for Labour to do well in those elections? Uh, I'll take the easy one. First, I'll go for Wales. Um, <laughs> I think Mark Drake is doing, doing a really good job. He's really impressive and, you know, certain, obviously, I don't see everything because I'm this side of the border, but um, I think he's been a very impressive communicator throughout the, the whole crisis um, and certainly been, been been impressive. Scotland, again, I speak from being being south of Hadrian's Wall, so I'm not um, fully acquainted with all the goings on. It doesn't look good in terms of polling, um, but hopefully we can change that through, through the course of the campaign and really emphasise that, you know, there was only one there's only one route to voting for progressive politics within the union uh, and that's the Labour Party. It's really emphasised emphasized the former about, you know, we are the only socialist party that are operating in those elections. We're the only one who are going to redistribute power and wealth to people in Scotland. And 
the SNP aren't because they are fast and Tories uh, and the Tories aren't because they're Tories. Um, so I think it's really important that that message emphasising for the many, not the few, um, takes a kind of central role in that campaign. Um, now, one of the um, great uh, issues in Scottish politics is, of course, independence. And you mentioned the SNP there. And a new poll has just come out uh, from Ipsos Mori, uh, which has support for independence at 58%, uh, support for continuation of union it's got remaining in the UK at 42%. Do you think that the Labour Party should um, commit to an independence referendum, even if it's not something that we uh, necessarily want to do, simply to get the issue out of the way? Or do you think that Labour should continue to perhaps not have the most uh, pro-Indy referendum position? So my view is the latter. I don't think we should be calling for a referendum. We are a you know unionist party, and we believe in, in collectivism beyond kind of national, you know, within the UK perspective, uh, national borders and, and loyalties. So I think we should be firm against that, but equally shift that debate beyond those constitutional questions of independence towards you know who is who operates in the interests of working people mm. in Scotland and indeed across the country. And there's only one answer to that, and that's the Labour Party. Um, what are your thoughts on um, Richard Leonard's leadership? Because I know that there have been, from some quarters, some criticism of it. Do you think that he's uh, doing a good job? Are there certain things that you think he needs to improve upon? Um, again, I don't know too much about the internal dynamics in Scotland. In, um, I know one of the things that he struggles with into is people knowing him, um, mm. which is which is, on the one hand, a bad thing because you're a leader, you want to be known by the country, but equally gives him an opportunity later on in the campaign when those, you know, broadcasting rules kick in to really introduce himself properly. And um, I think that potentially presents us with, with some kind of opportunity. And, you know, I think if he delivers that message about collectivism beyond those national borders and the importance of the Labour's always paid in Scotland, uh, I think there is, a, there is a way to rebuild his personal image. Uh, and also, sorry, in a similar poll today that Keir Starmer's polling well in Scotland so emphasise that too uh, and also get Gordon Brown out on the on the campaign trail. <laughs> yeah I think that, that would obviously yeah, help a great deal um, looking forward to uh, 2024 what do you think the Labour Party really has to do to um, gain back support that it lost in areas of the, the north of England that of course it, it, it lost quite a few seats at the um, last election what do you think it needs to do is there any one thing that it needs to do or do you think it's a, a variety of things that it needs to do to get that support back definitely a combination of things but in the overarching terms I'd say about emphasising the importance of, of that redistribution of economic policies about really emphasising power and, you know, not just on the devolution perspective, although that's incredibly important, but also, you know, which party operates in the interests of, of working people in, in the North and indeed across the country. And really emphasise that the Labour Party is the only party that does that. Um, I think many of the recommendations of the Labour Together report, particularly from a policy perspective, are really good. Uh, and it's great that that's kind of united across the whole party. The commissioners on that report really, really um, stretch from across the party. I think that's really good. So I think it's emphasising that, you know, socialist, anti-austerity, economic policy, and then also potentially emphasising that with a, with a patriotic perspective as well, you know, that, that we are proud of, of the country that we, that we live in 
and you know the Tories operate within and in any service, a particular elite, a particular small group of people. The, the idea of capital, they only finance capital on a particular elite, whereas Labour operates for the many. Uh, and I'll, I'll, you know, the Tories' elitism is working against this country. So I think we need to emphasise the patriotism there. Do you think that, and this has been um, suggested by a few people, I don't know how much you agree with it, do you think that um, Labour perhaps should emphasise more regional uh, devolution to areas in the north of England, perhaps take a more federalist uh, approach, do you think that that would gain some uh, more support? Potentially. Uh, I think it has to be part of a wider package in terms of, um, you know, it shouldn't just be political, it should be economic mm. as well. And really devolving that to, you know, regional economic bodies and this uh, investment bank that's going to be based in the north in, in Labour's last manifesto to, to reinvigorate that and bring that back. Uh, definitely, devolution is something that can help from a policy perspective. And I think we need to win the argument for that as well. Um, you know, the 2004 referendum within the North East was lost and quite convincingly so. So we need to win an argument for that on a public level. But from my experience in, you know, knocking on doors, etc., people like Andy Burnham. They like the idea of having an Andy Burnham. Um, and I think through kind of Labour successes at that level, be that Andy Burnham or Steve Rotherham or indeed across, Dan Jarvis across, across the country, um, we need to really emphasise that, you know, even if the national picture isn't, isn't looking good, which I hope it will be uh, at the next election, that Labour can still be doing stuff at local level and actually the importance of, of having that local local autonomy because we are one of the most centralised countries in the world. I think we are the most centralised country mm. in the OECD uh, and that has massive implications for policy making because, um, you know, you've seen that with, with COVID and the failure to track and trace and, and various things really. Um, you know, transport in the North is still way behind the South. If you had policy makers getting on those um, packed trains in the morning, they might have more of an incentive to fix them. And oddly, that's an argument that seems to be made by Michael Gove at Ditchley, his number two, Theodore Agnew, at the Tory conference. So maybe it might happen. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing up uh, policymakers, of course, one of the issues that has been um, uh, very much uh, influenced by policymakers at the moment is Brexit. We're seeing the internal market bill uh, going through the House of Commons at the moment. How concerned are you about this particular piece of legislation? And what do you think will be the impact of a, a no-deal Brexit on the North? Um, so to answer the first question about the internal market bill, it's, it's a really weird thing to do at this point of the negotiations when the real tension between the government and the EU is about the state aid rules and about whether or not they can um, have a non-binding commitment that, that, we, you know, that we will follow mm. uh, EU rules and that's based on a particular point of trust. And that trust was lost by a reckless, but also ultimately pointless decision to put this internal market bill through to break international law. It looks bad for the country, uh, has massive implications for our, our, those negotiations with the EU. I think it's a really reckless, stupid and pointless thing to do. Um, that bill, and I'm disappointed that, you know, the Barry MPs both voted for it and then to break international law. In terms of no deal, I think I'd have significant implications. I think it'd be disastrous for the country. Um, the impacts of supply chains, manufacturing, of the rights of people um, to, to move abroad, uh, stuff like the EHIC, the medical card, um, animal rights even abroad. Um, I think it would be really, really bad for this country. And I you know, just hope in the next few weeks that we can, we can avert that. Um, moving uh, to the other uh, side of 
the Atlantic now. There's only about 20 odd days until the, the US presidential election. So what are your general feelings about the, the presidential election? Are you hopeful of a Biden victory? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I hope Biden beats Trump. You know, I'm not a massive fan of his from a personal policy policy perspective, but you know, anyone's better than Trump, <laughs> almost anyone is. Um, and Biden is is certainly better than Trump. So I hope he wins. I hope he wins convincingly, um, and really sends a message to to Donald Trump. And wouldn't it be great to see someone in the White House who, who isn't Trump? <laughs> um, how concerned at all are you? This is a an issue that's been um, raised somewhat at the possibility that Donald Trump challenges some of the of the mail-in ballots and tries to get them um, thrown out so that one particular state goes from Biden to, to Trump and it changes the result of the election. Is that something that um, you're concerned about at all? Definitely, definitely. I mean, it's definitely within his character to try and do that. I expected him to do that in 2016 um, if he lost the, the result. So certainly expect him to do it now. I think maybe the precedent set in 2000 with the Gore v. Uh, v. Bush election, but also the, the cases that happened after that might potentially uh, stop that from happening. But I don't think Trump's going to stop this lightly, which all the more emphasises the importance of people getting out to vote, voting against Trump um, in as large numbers as possible, because that will make that result as convincing as possible, make sure that any challenge would, would fall flat on his face. But I do think it's really damaging for a, a democracy if, you know, if one side of it doesn't accept the result. I think it's really damaging because you completely undermine authority, etc. I, you know, think it's that'd be really bad. Um, one of the other issues that has been prominent on the um, campaign trail has, of course, been the Supreme Court and uh, Donald Trump's attempts. So far, he's not been able to do it yet to confirm Amy Coney Barrett as a replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. Um, some in the Democratic Party have suggested that. If Biden wins, he should attempt to pack the court, which means to add extra seats to it. Do you think that this would be something that he'd have to do to ensure his uh, legislative agenda got through and challenged? Or do you think that it's a, a bad idea to politicise the court too much? Uh, well, I think the court's already, already political. I'm not sure about the internal strategic questions, but I don't see why not. You know, precedent, particularly set by Mitch McConnell in 2016, uh, in not allowing Barack Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court through has really damaged trust, uh, I believe, in, in the institution and the relationship between those branches of the American government. So I think it's really important that that's reversed and it's only fair that um, additional additional members are added because there will be two members who are appoint, appointed in, in weird circumstances mm. um, that shouldn't be repeated. So I think if that's redressed, uh, that will seem fair, yeah. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. As always, it's been great to have you on, Nathan. And I've got uh, one final uh, question for you. Um, as mentioned at the start of the podcast, you're standing uh, for uh, election. Uh, so my question to you is this. If you are uh, elected, um, what sort of victory meal would you uh, most like to, to have after, uh, after your victory? Ooh, good question. Uh, I think I'd like a, a nice pizza uh some spicy yeah some jalapenos and stuff on it uh, like a nice local pizza from from up the road um i think i deserve that i've managed to, to hold on to it uh, well that sounds like a, a a great meal um if people want to find out more about your campaign or about you where should they go 
Sure. Um, Uns with Labour on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, give us a follow. Uh, it'd be greatly appreciated. And uh, I'm Nathan Seaborough on Twitter. So we'll basically be retweeting Uns with Labour's uh, content anyway. Uh, we can follow both uh, for double the content. Excellent. Well, thank you once again for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.